You just sang a very dangerous song. If you're willing to give your life, so will I. We'll come back to that in just a second. I'm looking over a group of people who don't mind getting up early, right? So next week, yeah. So there's three services next week, 8.15, 9.45, 11.30. I know you came to the 11 today, but you wouldn't mind the 8.15 necessarily. Um, here's the deal. If you're coming next week to the 9.45 or the 11.30, um, chances are parking is going to be pretty tight. And the bowling alley just right next door has agreed to let us use their parking lot. I told you before, we moved here thinking the parking lot was going to be big enough, and it's not. And so we're going to be working on that. But for now, if you're able and you don't mind, and maybe it's not raining next Sunday, um, if you could park there, and it's like a two-and-a-half-minute walk back down the sidewalk right back here to the church, that would help us out. Just that detail. And then one other detail. Ladies, if you happen to not get in here right at the start of the service, Jeff mentioned that there's an event coming up for you. It's on April 30th. There's a table out in the atrium after the service, and my wife will be at that table providing you with tickets. Last day to register is April 20th, but the event is on the 30th. So if you're interested in that, it's a simulcast. It's designed for you. Um, be sure to go up to that table after this service. I would love to pray with you about the things that we're going to look at this morning, especially in light of what we just declared in that song. Because sometimes when we say phrases that are written in a song, we stop and think about it afterwards and think, hmm, I wonder if I should have said that. Let's pray. Father, in respect of what we're looking at this morning and your willingness to speak the truth in love and to confront where you need to confront, I pray that you'd be gracious to us right now if we declared that statement lightly and didn't really mean that we would do what you did. But at the same time, we would ask that you would give us the capacity to have that kind of a heart. There's so many people we know, Father, that need your forgiveness. We need it. We need your grace. We need your mercy. So be gracious to us now as we watch how you took on this last week and use it to edify us, strengthen us. Pray for your blessing on us. Teach us at the same time. God, we pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. I want to start you out with Ephesians. You might think it's a weird place to start for Palm Sunday, but let me take you to Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what the hope of his calling is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and this especially. What is the surpassing greatness of his power? toward us who believe. I'm going to ask you to latch on to that component. Paul is speaking to the church. He's not speaking to non-church people. He's not speaking to non-believers. He's speaking to people who are believers. He says, you really need to latch on to this, that you would get a hold of this truth, the truth of how awesome and powerful he is to rescue his power toward us who believe. I would add to that, determined, as you're going to see this morning. So as Paul's writing, y'all need a measuring rod. 
You need some way to grasp, some mechanism to understand his intentional great power toward us. And beautifully, God provides the image for that this morning, as you're going to see in this passage that we're looking at. Actually, I'm going to take you to four separate passages. It's all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'd tell you where to turn to this morning, but it's going to move so fast, you might as well just look along on the screen, and you'll see the picture of the power of his determination toward you. So what is Jesus doing this particular day? We've been asking that question over the last couple of weeks. He's been walking toward the cross. And three weeks out, we saw that he was in Jericho, dealing with a blind man. The most important person in the world stopping to help the least important person in the world who's in a gutter. Two weeks out, he stands in a cemetery. He's reminding Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection. And now we come to one week out. And we'll see him walking in confrontation, never afraid to let the truth be spoken. Jesus' compassion and Jesus' conviction is so great, he has to confront. And by that I mean speaking the truth in love. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. It's a a reflection, actually, exactly of who he is. This is what he calls us to do. Look with me at Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. That's you. Speak the truth, but speak it in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Be willing to say hard things, be willing to do hard things, not in a vindictive manner and not in a bitter manner, but with love as your motivation. That kind of sets the stage for the story we're going to look look at. And in order to set the stage a little bit fuller, we need to understand an Old Testament action. So let me begin with you by talking about calendars. Our Western calendar and the Jewish calendar don't always mesh up. As a matter of fact, sometimes they're at complete opposites. The Jewish calendar still exists today. Part of the world operates on the Jewish calendar system. But the Western calendar that we operate, they rarely link together. Often the dates are just off. But once a year, every year, a reset takes place all over the world. The calendar by which the Western world operates is reset in a sense in order to match the Jewish calendar. And most people are completely oblivious to it. Let me have you picture this. In reality, what you're going to celebrate seven days from today, Easter morning, that celebration on our Western calendar is based each year on when Passover occurs in the Jewish calendar. Now, you might be thinking right now, like, okay, why do I need to know that? Good question. Thank you for asking that. Appreciate that. Here's the deal. Preparation for Passover week begins on the 10th of Nisan. Nisan is the month that you're in right now, the month of April. Sometimes Nisan occurs in March. Sometimes it occurs in April. It's based on the lunar calendar. But preparations always began on the 10th of Nisan. It did in the time of Moses and Aaron, and it continued right on through into the first century. Passover day, that actually begins on April 15th. 
Uh, April 15th this year is, is a tax day, obviously. It's always a good day to remember because it's pretty important in our calendar. You want to keep track of it. But April 15th is more important because of a much bigger issue. That Passover day. That Passover day that I want you to remember this morning is the one that happened 2,000 years ago during the Jewish High Holy Week of Passover. And it's rooted in an Old Testament action. So here's why you need to know it. Watch this conversation between God and Moses and Aaron. Exodus 12.1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So when they select their lamb, the family was to bring it into their household, actually making it kind of like a family pet for four days, four days in advance of Passover. But let's just back up to Nisan. Nisan on their calendar is kind of like January in our calendar. It doesn't occur in January. It occurs in April, sometimes in March. But it's like our January because it's a reset of the calendar for this reason. Because it began when they left Egypt and they're no longer slaves. So God announced, I'm going to give you an annual reminder Every year, you're going to remember that you have a new beginning in me, a fresh new start. You used to be slaves. You're no longer slaves. So this month, it shall be a new beginning for you, no longer slaves, now worshipers. Sound familiar to anyone? And then God goes on to say, gather the entire assembly together and tell them they're going to do something specific on the 10th of the month. Look again, Exodus 12, 1 and 3. On the tenth day of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, a lamb for each household. Here's why you need to know this. The tenth of Nisan is critical to Passover because it's known as Lamb Selection Day. So this is when every household would make their way to the market square, to the temple area, and there would be pens of sheep And lambs inside there had been inspected already by the priest, declared clear, pure, blemish-free, ready for the sacrifice. And your family was to choose a lamb to be sacrificed for your sins. Like in America, where people go to a tree farm to select a tree for their family at Christmas time, everybody would go around selecting the lamb that they wanted. Families chose a lamb to atone for their sin on the 10th of Nisan, which is the same as April 10th in the United States, anybody want to guess on what day the Lamb of God rode into Jerusalem and all the people selected him? What we call Palm Sunday, they called Lamb Selection Day. And everybody's gathered together for this purpose. You think there's coincidences with God. There's no coincidences with God. Now, we take that information and we move into the scene of these multiple events unfolding in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in context, Jesus has been at a dinner party. 
It's a really large group that's been gathered together, and they've witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus that you studied last week in John chapter 11. Go back with me to where we left off last week in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And word spread rapidly. Everybody wanted to see Lazarus. Everybody wanted to see this dead guy who's walking now. And they also want to see Jesus. And so we find in John 12, 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. If you lived in the region where they're at in that day, windows on a house would not have been found because they didn't have glass. But they did have shutters, and they would open it to let the wind move in and out. And if you went into the area of Bethany where he's at, Bethpage, this region, you would find people with homes with courtyards but those who milled up and down the streets, they could stop and lean into your window. There's no glass to prevent them and have a conversation with you or step into your courtyard to see what's going on. And we're told that all these people are converging on Martha and Mary's house because they want to see Lazarus and Jesus. And they're in awe. As you can imagine, messianic hopes are running extremely high. If you're a church person before, perhaps you've associated these two thoughts together. But Passover in the ancient world is very much like spring break here in the United States if you combine it with the final four. <laughs> Put the electricity of that air together in one region. And you've got a party crowd that's come together, not in an immoral way, but for moral purposes. So there's lots of energy. So Passover was the, the delight of the Jews, but it was the bane, the curse of the Romans. They had to put extra guards on duty. They'd constantly be watching for rioters or watching for pickpockets. Special units are on extra special alert, and Passover was impressive, even by today's standards. The population of Jerusalem at this time is 160,000 people on a normal basis. But we understand from what historians have written that it swelled extremely large. One historian wrote in 40 A.D. that there were 260,000 lambs that were killed in 40 A.D. at Passover. Now, typically, one lamb was killed for every 10 people. So 2.6 million people in a region that typically had 160,000 people in it. And this crowd hears that Jesus is nearby, and he's raised a man from the dead. So they swarm to see him. And then the next day, they hear that he's coming into Jerusalem, John 12, 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, meaning Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. So they hear Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and they begin pouring out of the city. And what many people don't put together is the fact that there was already a massive crowd following Jesus because of what he had done previously in Jericho, and then what he had done in the cemetery for Lazarus. There's thousands of people who are already with him, and now you've got the streets of Jerusalem emptying out, and these two great waves of humanity are flowing together, and they converge as he's cresting the hill. From Jericho to Jerusalem is only 17 miles, but it's 3,000 feet in elevation change, and it's a very gradual change, but by the time you get to Jerusalem, there's a hill, and as the hill is crested, you look out over all of Jerusalem. 
There's nothing taller than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at this time, except for this hill. It's 300 feet higher than the Temple Mount, and so the person cresting the hill is looking on the entire valley and looking over the top of the city. And this is where the crowd converges to meet Jesus. So we get these witnesses who are at the scene. Luke tells us, Luke 19, 36, as he was going, they're spreading their coats on the road. Maybe you know this from ancient history, but spreading your coat on the road before a ruler is essentially saying, we place ourselves in submission underneath you. And then another image that we get is from Mark. Mark says this in chapter 11, verse 8, they're spreading leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Well, that makes sense. There's palms all over Jerusalem. It's, it's plentiful. And then you get this view from Matthew, Matthew 21. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Matthew tells us that these followers have reached a new level of confidence. This is a giant step. He's resurrected Lazarus, and so they begin shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. I told you two weeks ago, that's the phrase that the blind man used in Jericho, to which everybody tried to shut him up. Stop saying that. But now hundreds of thousands of people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. We have to back up now to John's view because he has an insight for us that went even a step further. He said this in chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, the Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So you have a massive group shouting. In our world, in the political arenas, we know that there's an election coming up, a presidential election coming up in 2024. And so usually, typically in the political world, about a year and a half before a, a candidate is introduced to the community and people begin identifying who they're going to line up with and they begin proclaiming who they want to be elected. This particular crowd is kind of following that vein. When they say, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king of Israel, they're shouting, Jesus for president. We want him. And you can't blame them. Can you imagine having a presidential candidate who would get down in the gutter and hold the face of a blind man and restore his sight? Can you imagine a presidential candidate who could free the demon-possessed, who could cause the blind to see, who can make the lame walk? And now dead people are resurrected. Like, I'd vote for that candidate. Jesus for president. You'd want that one so you can't blame them and Jesus is heading toward the capital city, and the crowd believes nothing can stop him. And in truth, he can speak, and Pilate would be incinerated, but he doesn't do that. 
It's very clear, the crowds want a king, but they want a king of their own design. They want designer Jesus. They want a Jesus that's going to match their agenda. And that's just like us in 2022. Like many people today, Jesus is totally cool if he meets my interpretation of God. If he matches up to what I think God is like, then I'm good with him. And in the first century, their predominant thought is, we need to be saved from political trauma. So they want that ruler. And because it's their agenda, they think it should be God's agenda. So they're celebrating what they think will be a political takeover. But humanity and God are on opposite sides of an agenda again. So let's go back into the scene. We've got this huge crowd. They're escorting Jesus, and the cheer is deafening. And we get this response from the religious leaders who are there. Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And if you catch the tone, what's going on here? They're infuriated. This rabble, they're praising him as though he has the power of God. Stop them from calling you the son of David. Stop them from calling you the king of Israel. This is no polite request. They're furious. On the heels of that, Jesus' very brief response, I find captivating and humbling and awesome and confrontational. Watch his answer. Luke 19.40, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Exclamation point. The writers put that exclamation point on there because Jesus drove it home that way. It needed to be said. It had to be said. You might be looking at that phrase and thinking, that's just really brief. How is that confrontational? Jesus is saying, if the crowd hadn't said it, creation would have. That's what you just sang. That very last song. If creation cries out, so will I. The leaders of Israel, they have a few reasons for wanting this crowd silenced. Now, to be sure, Jesus is a threat to their authority. And they are really bitterly envious of his popularity. Many don't know that's one of the reasons they actually turned him over. But Pilate was confused. Look at, look at what, confused. This is what Mark wrote, Mark 15:10. For he, meaning Pilate, was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But there's another huge issue going on, and it's political. They fear Rome, and they fear the backlash to all this talk of another king. Here's an example for you. It comes from John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the signs that Jesus had done, these things which he had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If Jesus knows about a Jericho blind man before he ever gets to Jericho, 
if he knows that Lazarus has died before he ever gets to Bethany, he knows that all of this is boiling in the background. And he knows that their demand for the crowd to stop calling him the king, to call him the son of David, is only to appease their raging jealousy and their political fear of Rome. He will not rebuke the crowd. So Jesus walks in the confrontation of this moment, even though it will infuriate the leaders even more. Because truth is more important than feelings. And we live in a really feeling-oriented society. So we're afraid to speak truth. But God says to speak truth, but speak it in love. That your motivation is not bitterness, it's not vindication, but your motivation is love. Jesus will not rebuke the crowd because of love. And you may not be seeing it in this story, but I'm going to draw that out for you. Truth is more important than feelings. The hour has come, and he will not silence the truth. The opposite is true. He wants the crowd to open the floodgates. Church, i got to tell you, I'm very humbled, and I'm awestruck by this. Because it's the roar of the crowd. It's the applause of the people over his power to raise the dead, which he knows will drive the leadership of the nation into a frenzy to turn him over to the Romans for a cross. They're already tracking that way. Just because of the resurrection of Lazarus, watch this, John eleven fifty three. 53, from that day on they planned together to kill him. That's just because of Lazarus. In this deliberate action, you find Jesus reaching beyond the chaos of the crowd to remind us again of his determination, determined not to be deterred from the plan. So why the image of the rocks shouting? Because of truth. Why draw that out? I think if you're a student of the Bible, you know the book of Colossians. You probably know chapter 1, and in Colossians chapter 1, it says, everything was created by him, for him, and to him. That means even rocks will bow down to his majesty, amen? Even rocks will bow before him. But let's put this piece together. Tied into that is this reality. Any failure to be faithful to truth results in injustice. Any failure to be faithful to truth will result in injustice. This is not the first time this type of imagery has been used in the Scriptures. Going back to the minor prophets in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets in chapter 2, verse 11, he said this because he was dealing with some individuals who weren't being truthful. And he said, surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. He's not just talking about the stones in the street. Our houses are built with studs and we have drywall. Their houses were built with stones. He's saying even the walls of your house, even the rafters in your ceiling, they know the truth. They're going to cry out. You can't hide the truth. And then there's this image from Joshua. 
Joshua is dealing with the children of Israel, and he says this, Joshua 24, 27, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. What Jesus has just done is he's using a really familiar Old Testament image that these religious leaders, these Pharisees, who are the leaders of the nation, they know backwards and forwards, and he's just drawn that image forward, and he's saying... Truth cannot be shut down. Truth cannot be silenced. But additionally, in the context of these events, it is the purposes of God for him to be announced as king on the 10th of Nisan. He's coming into the city on Lamb Selection Day. Now, if you know this story at all, you know that by this point, Jesus is already mounted on a donkey. And in the ancient world in the Middle East, when a king rode into a city on a donkey, he's riding in on peace. It's like saying, there's no danger here. I'm not a threat to you. But when a king rides into a city on a white horse, on a war horse, a victorious general would ride the white horse of victory. Jesus is not riding on a white horse, not this time. He's doing that in the book of Revelation, by the way. He's coming back on a white horse, we're told. But here is this imagery. He's coming into the city on a donkey, entering humbly. And this is where church people's minds go on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But they stop short. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as a result of this, Jesus doing this, he fulfilled this prophecy. But there's more. There's verse 10. And the people living in the first century who knew the Bible forward and backwards, they know verse 10. And this is what they link with what they're seeing. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. Stop right there for a second. Who'd be good with no more war on our planet? How would you like to wake up tomorrow morning, you pick up a newspaper or you open up your phone, you look at it electronically on your laptop, and you find that Vladimir Putin has withdrawn from the Ukraine? He took all his troops back overnight? And he's made a public declaration that he's going to use Russia's financial resources to rebuild the Ukraine? You'd say, what happened to him? Would you be good with no more war? That's the promise coming out of verse 10, and keep going. And he, and it's speaking of the Messiah, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And if you're living in the first century, you know that passage. However, they didn't understand that that part was future. They didn't know, and they missed the future component of verse 10. See, there's no doubt what's in the mind of the people. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Well, they're half right. It is partially the fulfillment, but they're half wrong. Now, assembling all of the pieces together of what they've seen him heard and do, 
It's no wonder they've come to this conclusion. The long-awaited Messiah has come, and he's not just going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be of all the earth, and Jerusalem will be his capital city, and from here he's going to rule. What a day this is, how our hearts are pounding in our chest. No wonder they're screaming out the way that they are, and even the 12 disciples didn't get it. John writes with a really interesting perspective. He, he's like a third party in writing about this, but he's actually there at the scene. And he's saying they didn't actually realize what was going on on the 10th of Nisan, that this massive crowd was actually choosing our very own Passover lamb to take away sin. Watch John's view, John 12, verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. See, John's writing about himself and saying, we didn't get it. We couldn't put two and two together until afterwards by his deliberate manner to allow this crowd to keep going. Every shout of Hosanna, it guarantees another crack of the whip against his back. Every declaration of the son of David is driving the nails deeper into his hands. And the leaders of the nation will not stop until they crucified him. And Jesus knew that. He knew all of that. And he said, if they stop, the rocks will declare it. Because it has to be said. It had to be said. He had to confront them and say, this is the way it's going to play out. See, this new hope, this is why Jesus is peerless. This is how the God-man should respond. If you're relatively new to church and you're looking for evidence that Jesus is God, here's a billboard for you. Bear with me and let me play this out with you. Jesus is willing to walk in confrontation and let the truth be declared, even though he knows it will end in crucifixion. He understands exactly where this is going. We recognize it now because we have the benefit of time and we can look back on this. We can see this was all part of the intricate, monumental plan of God. So while riding on a donkey on the 10th of Nisan, he confrontationally says to the leadership of the nation, even rocks can see who I am. Even rocks can see the greatness of my power toward those who will believe the surpassing greatness. By refusing to silence the crowd, Jesus is in essence saying, I've put my power on display for the whole world to see. Blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people walk, and dead people are coming out of the grave. I am due the power and the creation's glory. They need to bring it to me. I am worthy of praise. So if you're looking for the billboard, here's the billboard. What I find in Jesus, I find in no one else. He brings the opposites together. Jesus walks in absolute, uncontested power, yet in complete humility, he rides a donkey. He heads into Jerusalem, captured, and to be crucified. 
and says, I can change the circumstances by calling a legion of angels in a moment. That same one weeps with Martha and Mary over the death of their brother Lazarus. Yet he says to them, hold on, for you will see the power of God on display. See, when you see Jesus, you see sovereign majesty with absolute power and yet tender mercy. Where on planet Earth, where in this vast world of ours do you find a combination of immeasurable power and immeasurable compassion in one world leader? I'll tell you where. Nowhere. Not yet. You will one day when he comes back. See, that's why they want Jesus for president. This is why Jesus is peerless. This is what the God-man does look like. He speaks the truth in love. Love drove him to the cross. Love allowed them to continue shouting, Hosanna. So two thoughts to send you out the door with to prepare you for Good Friday. I hope you can come back for Good Friday. And for Sunday, the first image comes to us that I'm going to close with from John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So you've got the politicians turning on each other and pointing fingers at each other. In what world would that ever happen? Just saying. Politicians wouldn't do that. They would never say, what you're doing is not working. The world's going after him. You've got a bad plan. They've turned on each other. Here's what's sad to me about this. They're so consumed with things not going their way, they completely miss the obvious. And that is a very dangerous place to be. When things are not going your way and you're so consumed with your own issues, you completely miss the work of Jesus right in front of you. And I got to tell you, church, I'm not throwing stones at them. I'm actually identifying with them. How many of us have done that? How many of us become so consumed with what we think is going wrong, we can't see what God's doing right in front of us? See, I understand I am the blind man on the road to Jericho. It's the touch of Jesus that caused me to be able to see. I, I am Lazarus dead in the tomb. I'm dead in my sins completely until I heard the voice of my Savior. But I'm also, I'm the crowd. I want God to do things my way, and God has to patiently remind me there's more going on than what you understand, Mark. There's bigger issues at play here. See, all these things taken together, all these things remind me that this was all part of the extravagant plan of our God for our salvation, which do this for me. This tells me that I was no afterthought. My salvation, your salvation, it was planned from before time. You are no afterthought. God intended to rescue before the earth was formed, God intended to save eons before you existed, if you will believe. Second component. The final image of Palm Sunday is actually fulfilled 
in heaven one day. You find it in the book of Revelation. Let me show you this. I think it's awesome. Revelation 7, 9. I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. His entry into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan in the first century with palms waving in the air is only a preview of eternity. Had Jesus taken his throne on that first Palm Sunday, none of us would ever be robed in white. None of us would ever have an eternity in the age to come. There had to be a cross first to pay for my sin, to pay for your sin. I'm so glad that God had a bigger plan. How about you? Regardless of your past, regardless of your failures, God says, I need to do this first to die for those failures so that you can wear a robe of white one day. So that one day, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you will find yourself standing with billions of people from the Ukraine, from Iceland, from Australia, from Ecuador, from Canada, from China, from Thailand. Billions upon billions, standing with palm branches. Not seated, by the way, standing before the king. Because you'll have a completely new body. And as Jesus looks out over that sea of green and brilliant faces in front of him, he will hear us raise up in one voice, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Salvation and honor and glory belong to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Our culture desperately needs to know what you know. They need to know what you've examined today. They desperately need the biblical truth of God that there is new life in Jesus Christ. So... If you're willing to speak the truth in love this week, I would greatly encourage you to engage in loving conversation with individuals who say this. Surveys tell us that most people who do not go to church say that they would go to a service if someone they knew invited them to come. Our entire metro area is connected by relationships within this church. You have the opportunity to invite people in your life to hear the good news of salvation and that there's new life in Jesus Christ this coming week. To speak the truth in love and invite someone to come with you. I'm going to pray for you that way, that each of us would take that responsibility seriously. And at the same time, we would model what Jesus showed us to model. Don't be afraid of the truth, but speak it in love, walking in confrontation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every single soul that is part of this church. So many watching virtually right now that can't be here and so many that fill this auditorium and every single one is part of the story of this church and precious to you.
God, I thank you that we are here. It is not by accident that we are here in this moment in time. We'll be sent out by you, and I pray that as we go out, we go with your blessing on us for having spent time in your word this morning. But God, as we reach for our car keys and we get in our cars and drive home, there's so much potential that we can dismiss or let it escape what we have learned from you today. Pray, Father, that it would be on our hearts tomorrow and the next day and the day after that as we consider what's at stake. Use us. Use us for your kingdom. Use us as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would be grateful for that. And we ask this in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to be down front if we haven't met before. I'd love to meet you, but otherwise, have a great week, New Hope. See you next weekend.